This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 10th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk to Daniel Harnsberger, the professional wrestler known as the progressive liberal, about how he invented his Hillary Clinton-loving character, what the Democrats need to do to win the 2018 midterms, and how he's planning to survive an upcoming Dukes of Hazard festival in Virginia. Brian Curtis of The Ringer will be here to help us assess Fox's ouster of Shoutfest show mastermind Jamie Horowitz and where ESPN's biggest rival goes from here. And we'll chat with Slate's NBA columnist Nick Green about Kevin Durant taking less cash so the Golden State Warriors can stay together and whether the league should shove the Eastern Conference into Yucca Mountain. Stefan Fatsis is out this week. Filling in for him, we're very lucky to have a genuine cyberhuman our nation's foremost thinker on the role of Fox Sports 1 in our society. It's Slate writer Ben Mathis Lilly. Hello, Ben. Hey, Josh. Cyberhuman, of course, being Jason Whitlock's term of art for something that only Jason Whitlock <laughs> understands. It's a thing that's online that he doesn't like. Um, and you are the quintessential thing online that Jason Whitlock doesn't <laughs> like. Our first guest this week came to my attention via a deadspin post published two weeks ago with the headline, The Progressive Liberal is Maybe the Perfect Wrestling Heel. That item introduced the world to a man who cuts promos for his matches in the Appalachian Mountain Wrestling Circuit while wearing a shirt plastered with various images of Hillary Clinton's face. Here's an example of some of his work on the microphone. You people need to be reprogrammed. You continually vote against your own interests. You put people in Congress in the White House, they aren't going to help you. They're not going to bring your jobs back. So what? let me tell you what the progressive liberal Daniel Richards is going to do. We're going to reprogram you. We're going to re-educate you. We're going to teach you to read and write. We're going to help you get jobs with clean energy. I am hoping that by the end of this segment, I will have a job with clean energy. My fingers are crossed. Uh, although he wrestles as Daniel Richards, 
Our hero's real name is Daniel Harnsberger. And when he's not changing voters' minds, he is a real estate agent in Richmond, Virginia. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. It's good to be on. So you explained in an interview with Sports Illustrated, it was a really good interview, where where you got um, the idea for your character. Can you explain that to folks who might not have seen that interview? Yeah, well, the... It is, it's me. It's not, so I'm not like, um, I'm not pretending to be like someone else or taking on another persona. It's just me amped up, you know, I'm much more quarrelsome than I am in the every day. So it's just, that's, that's what it is in a nutshell. You know, we say, we use the words character and persona for, you know, lack of a better term, but. Um, that's at the end of the day, it's just uh, Dan turned up and, and it was born, you know, it's just born out of the, my, my mentor, Bo James told me when I start, not, I've been wrestling maybe a couple of years and I had a real rough night, um, you know, as far as in the ring, it's not a good, good showing. And, you know, he got on me pretty hard. And one thing that he told me is you have to find yourself. So I didn't really know what that meant per se at that time you know as it related to wrestling and then you know in in 2014 i came up with the idea like just i felt like it would you know i knew where i was wrestling i knew the people and i felt like it would get some heat you know and have some legs and i i could picture i i could hear interviews in my mind think of things i would say relevant to that time and then it wasn't until late 2015, like November, November 2015, I was at a small show and I, I guy, the, the guy run that uh, show, his name was Randy Hicks. He said, Hey, I just want you to be the best bad guy you can be today. But I kind of had like an open invitation to do whatever I wanted. So I was like, I'm going to try this. And, you know, at that point, Trump had, Trump had announced his candidacy a few months earlier and, you know, that's playing material right there and uh, never stop. My favorite thing that I, th- I think you, you may have said that first night was about, about building a, ro- a wall. Uh, but instead of building the right. wall around Mexico, building it around the audience in, <laughs> in Kentucky. Yeah, building. Yeah. Bu- well, this that was in West Virginia. Was, oh, sorry. sorry. Know, yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> this is building it around that town so they can infiltrate the population. That got that. That's the one thing I said that night that I can vividly remember and it got you know relative to the crowd size it got a very strong response i knew i had something i just uh i ended up working for other promotions um and you know that's why i came up with the name the progressive liberal uh, you know the moniker in front of daniel richards which i've always wrestled with dan or daniel richards and um you know just it, it continued to evolve from there you know a lot of self-discovery on my part a lot of learning and then uh you know, as it relates to Apple, Appalachian country is uh, helping Bo. Bo's really helped me, you know, better understand the people there and why they are, how they are, and their, the history and things like that. And that helps. What I'm most curious about, uh, and and people listening really need to to look up a picture of of your Hillary Clinton shirt, which which involves some. It's, it's like fifty or sixty pictures of Hillary pasted over each other in a way that kind of suggests a, a nightmare. Or a, a an acid trip. I, I just want to know where you got that shirt in it, and whether um, you're maybe going to be able to to market them to the rest of us. Well, um, 
I wish I, I wish I could tell you right now that I designed it because I'd probably be making some extra coin if I had. But um, I, I Googled it, and I wish I could tell you the name of the website. But, I mean, I didn't think I'd need that information for, you know, the, <laughs> the notoriety that would that it would come. Because <laughs> um, I got it, like, I guess I got it, like, a year ago. And I was just, I, I sent an image of it to a few of the guys, and I was like, all the heat will now be mine. And <laughs> all of it. And, um... <laughs> I don't think I was too far off, but um, yeah, I just, I mean, I just did a Google search again. Love to say I did differently. And then I don't know like what the, um, if that falls under how that goes under fair use or not. Cause people have wanted me to put that in my t-shirt shop, which I have on, uh, you know, I have a t-shirt uh, store at what a maneuver.net. Uh, you just look up progressive liberal Daniel Richards, um, I don't have any images of Hillary and myself in, in that, but uh, I've, I want, I've broached the subject, so we're, I guess they're looking what a maneuver people are having their attorneys or people researching. So my question for you is, is there an embedded critique of the Democratic Party buried like a few layers within your ring commentary? Because this is not how one would go about persuading voters to make an extraordinarily obvious point. There's been so much conversation among those of us in the media about what the role of the press is after the election, whether you know we should be going to Appalachia to try to understand the people and why they're quote-unquote voting against their interests. Um, and obviously, like hectoring and lecturing them from a squared circle is not the way to go about, um, you know, getting votes for 2018 or 2020. So is there, um, again, some sort of uh, critique that you're making there about the way that Democrats or the press have gone about trying to change voters' minds? No. Um, I mean, <laughs> you got to remember, yes, <laughs> the short answer is no. But the long answer uh, the long but to the point answer is okay. People, my audience is not coming to talk about policy or hear about policy. You know, it's not a it's not a, a town hall meeting. You know, it's the 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 marquee says wrestling, and you know, politics is only a small part of the character. You know, I know that audience. It you could. Um, you could try to do everything you could to make me cheered by those people. It's not going to happen. Okay. So we're, we're going for one reaction or the other. We either want, we want them to hate the bad guy and want to see him get the buck, the their butts kicked by the good guy. And we want them to love the good guy kicking our butts. Right. So I've got one, two choices. So I choose the former. Um, but, one thing that's it's not it's not veiled like it's because some people have thought like oh this is actually a conservative guy pretending to be a liberal guy like it that's what the people at MSNBC thought at first before they started watching footage and then they figure out oh no he's an actual liberal um, and then people have interviewed me find that very quickly um, but my message it, it is really that like I'm the bold Democrat, which 
you know, we get labeled as snowflakes and all that stuff. And that's just a bunch of and culture right wing BS uh, to me. Um, but there is some truth in it. And progressive liberal is the one that boldly will go into the lion's den and, you know, speak and, and speak their piece and be unapologetic about it. And I think that's how Democrats need to, to be. They need to have a, a clear message and b you know, be bold about it and be unapologetic about it. That's what Republicans do. I mean, I don't know how clear their message is, but at the end of the day, the way they're perceived is the party of God and morality and, and, uh, you know, they're conservatives when there's really not too much that's actually conservative or consistent about them. Um, Ben, what do you think the Democrats can learn from the progressive liberal? Well, I was going to say, I, I think that Bernie Sanders just had a, a pretty large rally in West Virginia. Um, it was related to to the uh, to the Republican health care bill in the Senate. Uh, but obviously, Bernie Sanders is a, is a supporter of uh, you know Medicare for all or uh, universal coverage, whatever, however you would put it. So I, I would say that um, that Bernie going in into that area of the country. Uh, and saying what he did say, uh, I think that's a, a sign that uh, that Daniel's already having an effect. I mean, who's to say that that, that Sanders would have done that if uh, the progressive liberal hadn't hadn't paved the way for him? Well, well, I, Bernie's an exception to the rule. I love Bernie. Um, you know, Bernie. I, I don't have a Bernie Sanders collage shirt on because those people aren't going. It's not going to get the same reaction. You know, I. Hillary is, you know, universally hated. You know, I mean, we had in this election, you know, I, I voted for Hillary, obviously, um, but this election, last election, was the least two popular candidates of all time, <laughs> and then they're running against each other for our nation's highest office. Um, but you know, it, just Bernie wouldn't bring the same type of reaction. So uh, you know, so your success. And the fact that you've gotten so much media attention, um, CBS News is going to be following you around this week. The obvious question here is, why are you the first pro wrestler to seize on the seemingly obvious fact that people hate liberals uh, who love <laughs> who love pro wrestling? So Vince McMahon has a connection and affiliation with Donald Trump, his wife, Linda is a, a Republican uh, potential office holder who never seems to win elected office. But do you think that Vince's um, ties to the Republican Party have blinded him to the possibilities here? I mean, there have been Soviet wrestlers who've um, you know generated heat. There was like Sergeant Slaughter's sympathies with the Iraqis was was a big thing back in the day. This just seems like such a big missed opportunity for um, the bigger wrestling promotions. I wonder what's going on here. Uh, well, the thing, the difference between WWE and like, uh, you know, an independent promotion like Appalachian Mountain Wrestling is that we're, we're not a publicly traded company unlike WWE. And also we're, you know, we don't, we have, we have local sponsors, but it's not, we don't have this major uh, national TV deal and all that stuff riding on it. So there's no stakeholders, you know, dictating our content. So we don't, we can we can bring people high and we can bring people low. We're not 
as we don't have to be, you know, our focus doesn't have to be putting smiles on people's faces, which is, you know, WWE's philosophy. And I'm not knocking them for that because they're in, it's a different ball game, you know, just being publicly traded alone. And I understand that. I You'll mean, knock everyone who lives in a red state, but you won't knock the WWE. <laughs> No, I mean, for God's sakes, I wouldn't mind being employed there. But I mean, <laughs> you know, do they have know. any jobs that uh, that are clean energy jobs? That's what we need. That's what we need. We can only hope so. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I mean, it is what it is for them, and we we have a little more creative freedom. I mean, we don't. There, there's things that we don't touch that you know. I don't think any wrestling promotion would touch like religion. And we also don't talk about local politics. We, you know, we, we only touch on national politics and broad brushstrokes. You're not going to hear me talk about Betsy DeVos being a terrible (laughs) abomination of the secretary of education. You know, it's, it's, you know, Trump's the head of the snake. And usually and we're at, when I'm in Kentucky, I'll talk about Mitch McConnell. That doesn't get you know, there's no Mitch McConnell chance, and I guess that's a good thing. Ben, but there are you, tons of Donald Trump chance. Ben, do you have any Mitch McConnell-related promos that you could give uh, <laughs> the progressive liberal? Uh, I mean, you know, he kind of looks like, um, you know, Montgomery Burns from The, the Simpsons. I mean, he has oh, that. He, he does. Mr. Burns. <laughs> <laughs> he has that affect, a kind of gnarled uh, affect of a of of a great villain. Uh, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that uh, that uh, his. Uh, Insults to the uh, the procedural norms of the U.S. Senate carry over quite as well as as some of the no. things about the about the wall. <laughs> no, talk bad about Reagan. Talk bad about um, Trump, and you know you got them. And then you know talk about you know pronouncing words differently than they do, and it's heat. So you're going to be wrestling at a Dukes of Hazard themed festival in Virginia on the last week of July. You've got events coming up this week. In London, Kentucky, Ashland, Kentucky, Hazard, Kentucky. A lot of hazard going on. I wanted to ask specifically about the Dukes of Hazard themed festival. Um, it's a crowd that's known for its affection for the Confederate flag. Um, right. What um, are you expecting there? And does the antipathy towards you, like, how much is the crowd in on the quote unquote joke? And how much do you get the sense that people in the crowd just genuinely hate you and want you to feel pain? Uh, I mean, it's more of the latter. I mean, it, look, the jig was up a long time ago when uh, you know Vincent Mann came on the airways. I mean, the ster- started with the steroid trial, but definitely if there was any doubt, then I mean, we came on the airways in I think '97 and you know talked about it being sports entertainment and so on and so forth. I mean. The jig is up. So, but so what we have, so if they know our outcomes are predetermined, I mean, you also go to movies knowing the outcome's predetermined. It doesn't mean you can be, emo- cannot be emotionally hooked. It's not like you're at the movie, like I was at Transformers. So it's like, no way Optimus Prime can do that. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, but it's up to us, especially, you know, at, li- you know, in these live events to, uh, not uh, disrupt the suspension of disbelief. So that that's a challenge. And then, you know, through our interviews and through the stories we tell in the ring, um, you know, keep them emotionally involved. So that 
when wrestling's done right, that's what you have. Daniel Harnsberger is the wrestler known as the progressive liberal. His finishing move is the liberal agenda. You can see him and some upcoming appearances in Kentucky this week. You can follow what he's doing on Facebook and Twitter. We will post the links to those on our show page. Daniel, thank you, and best of luck uh, getting people in red states to hate you. Josh and Ben, they make they make it very easy. So I, but I <laughs> thank you anyways, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In a piece last week for The Ringer, Brian Curtis wrote that Jamie Horowitz molded Fox Sports 1 in his own image. What that meant in practice was filling the schedule with argument-based programming of the kind he'd pioneered at ESPN, lining up Colin Cowherd and Skip Bayless and Jason Whitlock and Shannon Sharp to embrace debate on a daily basis. As my colleague Mr. Mathis Lilly wrote in his assessment of Horowitz and FS1 back in March, the best comparison for Horowitz's plan of action was what Jeff Zucker has been doing at CNN. That is, trying to win an audience via oppositional takes that inspire people on the internet to express feelings of total validation or extreme rage. Horowitz and FS1 hadn't thus far been rewarded with particularly high ratings, and last week he was suddenly let go by Fox amid what news outlets have reported are claims of sexual harassment, claims that Horowitz's attorney has called slanderous. Joining us now to discuss Jamie Horowitz and what he's leaving behind at Fox Sports 1 is Brian Curtis, editor-at-large for The Ringer. Hey, Brian. Hey, boys. And the interesting thing, Brian, about Horowitz's ouster is, you know, you mentioned molding Fox Sports 1 in his own image. The week before he got let go, he had himself let go 20 writers and editors who were writing for the Fox Sports website, which, to my understanding, is every writer and editor who is working for the Fox Sports website. This does not seem like a move that someone would make um, if they thought that they were going to get let go. He was continuing to change what Fox Sports 1 was doing. Am I correct in thinking that this came as a total surprise to Horowitz and to everyone who worked there? Absolutely right. One of the biggest questions in our little sports media universe that I would hear from people outside of Fox and even inside of Fox was, how much time does Jamie have? People ask that all the time, given the ratings of the network. I never got any indication before last week that he was on a short leash at all, ever, not once. Uh, and I think that whole thing with the website, which I still don't quite understand, not sure why hot takes are okay on TV but not online, uh, indicated that he was he was settled in for the long haul. The ratings for FS1 were comically low. Uh, Richard Deitch has a habit of pointing out that they're below, you know, various cartoons that we've uh, never heard of. Um, the question I guess I have is, you know, the vision that Horowitz seems to have had is let's 
you know, acquire, you know, whether it's Skip Bayless or Colin Cowherd, you know, guys who can fill in a lot of airtime. And then we'll kind of like figure it out down the line. It's like a, a GM who's making a plan to beat the Warriors in three or four years. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, is was that a reasonable strategy? And were there any indications that it was working or was going to work despite the extremely low ratings? Well, I think it's a, I mean, I think that's a fascinating question. We don't quite know the answer to would it have worked. I'd, I'd consider it on two levels. One, I always like to think of Bayless and Coward, and this sounds like an insult, but it's not, as innings eaters. I mean, they were, they are the kind of guys you can go and they're like, they are on the air for a remarkable amount of time every single day. We talk about famous, you know, we, how much, you know, we talk about like the Scott Van Pelt Sports Center. Scott Van Pelt does an hour. Those guys do hours and hours and hours of television. So in terms of just like what you're talking about, filling up the network, that's what they were there for. I think the other thing to think about is like we have talked so much about how the only thing people will watch on sports television or maybe any television now is live games. And so part of this kind of wait for FS1 was they needed to get lots of interesting games that people actually wanted to watch. And this fall, they're going to start having Big Ten football which is in relevant to someone on this uh, on this segment right now. Like, right. like we turned on for years ESPN. If you turned on ESPN on a college football Saturday, they would have Michigan playing some team I didn't care about at noon like every single day. Like Michigan Purdue, Michigan Central Michigan whatever. That was always on. But that was something and often actually losing in humiliating fashion to those There you go. It was actually <laughs> on all the time, but now like FS1 will have a taste of that. So I think part of the grand strategy here was, I mean, obviously, Skip and Colin, all those guys attracted so much attention, but part of it is like, we have to have something on this network until we can get games on this network and then make it something that people will actually want to watch. Um, that's that's actually brings up a point I'm interested in, uh, is, is, you know, obviously everyone's going to be looking at, uh, well, everyone, everyone in the subset of people who watch FS1 to begin with, which is, as we know, is a smaller subset than the subset of sports fans. But everyone's going to be looking at whether uh, they continue with this strategy of, of building around Skip and Shannon and, and Cowherd and Whitlock. Um, one thing I'm curious about is whether they're going to attempt to cross-promote those people with their big college football games this fall. Uh, I mean, it seemed to me to be kind of obvious that if they were ever really going to take off, they had to actually get Skip and get Cowherd uh, kind of deeply involved in broadcast, you know, in the broadcasts of the the baseball playoffs, which were, I think, up until this point, probably their biggest uh, rating successes. So I am curious to see uh, whoever whoever comes in. Uh, not only are they going to commit to having those guys filling, like you said, twelve hours a day or or whatever it is on uh, on FS1, but are they are they going to be bringing the you know bringing the hot takes even closer into the the overall Fox Sports orbit? I would think so. I mean, I think it just makes a whole lot of sense, and we've seen that happen on ESPN where, you know, shockingly, their debate show anchors are happen to be talking about exactly what ESPN is showing that night. Uh, Colin Coward is a really natural match for college football because he's talked about college football forever. In fact, it was one of his signatures as a radio guy going back to his ESPN days. He's one of the few sort of national hosts who really liked and cared about college football. I, my guess on what they're going to do, and this is purely a guess, is that they double down with these guys. They're so far into uh, Skip Bayless and Colin Coward in terms of money, in terms of promotion, and it really makes sense to continue down that road 
short of a different strategy. And I just think, like, and also, you know, people say, well, what if Fox tries something different? Well, what are they going to try? I mean, whole, you know, Horowitz's whole thing was that the highlight could no longer carry a sports television show by itself, right? I think that's been proven. He was right. Part of the reason he was such a controversial, magnetic, whatever you want to call him, figure in sports TV is that he was right. And there was a lot of truth to that. And so if they pivot, to use a terrible media term we've been hearing a lot lately, what do they pivot to? What do they do? They're going to show highlight shows? They're going to show some kind of fake sports center on FS1? And that's why it makes the most sense to me that they're just going to be doing what they're already doing. Right. It's, it reminds me of, uh, you know, if highlight shows don't work and, and they decide that opinion shows don't work, it reminds me of the, uh, I think, the Orlando Magic general manager. Uh, I, this was in the post-Shaquille era uh, when his team was, was struggling, and he said he, uh, you know, we play the games at home and we lose, and we play the games on the road and we lose, and so I just am trying to figure out another place to play the games. Uh, and if you're not doing highlights and you're not doing opinion and you don't have the rights to, uh, you know, the Big Ten is, is, is a step in the right direction for them. But, but you know, they're, it's, they're obviously not competitive with ESPN, which has a, a big game on basically every night. You know, it's not, it's not clear to me whether there is any other approach at all. Yeah. And it feels, you know, if it feels jarring and it feels like they have to change course, I think it's because, as Josh said earlier, this this network was so molded in Jamie Horowitz's image, like everything down to the website, to the host, to the to the line, to everything was molded in his image. And this idea, I mean, isn't it remarkable, by the way, that we know who this guy is? How many sports TV executives ever, much less currently, could anybody name? Could your basic sports fan name two or three? And yet, so many people knew who Jamie Horowitz was because. He was happy to, you know, talk crap about ESPN because he was able, but he he was sort of this sort of wrestling heel style figure at the head of FS1, but also just because the whole network was his. He did everything on that network and and everything was was shaped in his image. So back to the beginning of Horowitz's career, he started out um, at ESPN, best known for launching First Take, also did the Keith Olbermann show had a stint at um, the Today Show that ended very poorly. Is the fact that he is somebody whose name we know and who we're talking about, is that because he's just a really good self-promoter? Was there something back during um, his stint at ESPN that, um, you know, made all these other places want to give him a chance. And I wonder if, um, I I guess it depends on how the investigation into his behavior shakes up or whether he'll get a chance again. Uh, I don't think anybody would deny that he was good at getting media attention, uh, especially probably his old pals at ESPN who would read those stories and wince. Uh, But, you know, I think it's probably the answer is that he did a lot more than just unleash the monster that is sports debate television. I mean, if you look at the ESPN lineup now, there's, his fingerprints are all over it. So we got first take, right? He promoted and encouraged Michael and Jamel when they were on his and hers on ESPN2, now the big stars of the 6 p.m. Sports Center. Uh, people like Michelle Beadle and Sports Nation, he had a huge hand in. His, his whole, I think, their whole lineup, and also, you know, they just released a new TV lineup a couple of weeks ago. 
shows like Pablo and Bomani. Now, that might not be what we consider a Jamie Horowitz show in the sense that that wouldn't run in a, the exact same form on FS1, but the idea that you're moving completely toward shows driven by two personalities having an argument or a discussion or whatever you want to call it, that's the Horowitz vision. So I think... Well, even Scott yeah, Van Pelt Sports Center, right, as a personality-based yeah, show. Exactly, exactly. And this idea that, you know, his, like I said, he wouldn't be such a dynamic figure if he wasn't right about highlights and he wasn't right about personality and the way sports TV was going. And ESPN would, would totally say, oh, no, no, we, we're not going down the same path as FS1. And they're not totally, but they certainly have taken steps in that direction. And I think that's probably why he's so influential and well-known. Uh, so there, there have been some reports in the uh, in the uh, in the sports media press uh, that Katie Nolan is <laughs> is maybe on her way out at Fox Sports. Uh, when I interviewed Horowitz uh, a few months ago, um, you know he he was he went out of his way to to praise Katie Nolan and say that she was an integral uh, part of of his vision for the the network going forward, which was. You know, not only was was probably lip service to someone who who had you know her own fans at the network, but also you know, as one thing I learned in watching a lot of his shows, he he really is not committed to a particular political uh, viewpoint, um, which I think a lot of people might not realize, just given that his shows tend to be controversial um, because of the kind of the right wing uh, orientation of some of the takes that come out of them. Um, but it, you know, it seemed like he did have an honest. Uh, a commitment, a sincere, sincere commitment to keeping Katie Nolan, who's 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 more of a liberal person, uh, in the fold. Um, she's reportedly on her way out, and it seems like it's not. That's not necessarily connected to Horowitz's firing. Um, I saw Brian. I saw you tweet about that, um, and I was wondering if you had any any inside scoop for us on what's going on there. Well, I think two, a couple of a couple of notes on this. One is that she produced her bargain basement late night TV show out of New York. And she was never in L.A. doing a daily show for Horowitz with him bringing on, bringing all of his producing chops to, to her and him kind of showing her, here's how you can do daily television. I, said, I wrote that he was a shadow producer of every show on FS1. That never happened. I think that was something that might have happened had he stayed on or, you know, depending on what Nolan wanted to do. But that, that scenario never happened, and that would have been kind of fascinating because you would have taken, as you say, a very different viewpoint than some other people on FS1, but put the Horowitz push and production values and all that stuff behind it. That never happened. The other thing I always found about fun, interesting about Katie Nolan and FS1 is her audience on Twitter is sort of the opposite of the audience of FS1, right? On the one hand, we're trying to find viewers that, you know, are happy to watch people yelling at each other on TV or, you know, enjoy that sort of controversy or don't mind a, you know, politically tinged meltdown every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Katie Nolan's audience on Twitter is like exactly the opposite of that. So whether she would have wanted to go to FS1 and sort of, you know, cross that, that Rubicon, I don't know. And that's always funny to me. Certainly her going to ESPN in some as-yet-named capacity tracks with everything that I've heard. I mean, that's uh, a kind of uh, the test that they're going to face uh, with the Bimani Jones and Pablo Torre show as well, right? I mean, those, those, both of those guys on uh, their Twitter presence, uh, a lot of it involves uh, kind of sticking up for certain progressive viewpoints in a way that, that is fairly uncommon 
uh, in the in the sports chatter, sports talk, sports debate world. Um, and but ESPN is is going kind of full in on uh, on launching a a Horowitz esque show around them. Obviously, he's not going to be producing it himself. Uh, but but uh, it seems to to be that they're going to uh, you know be uh, be doing kind of the the liberal version of uh, of what Colin and uh, Whitlock are doing. But I think it's a much safer space on ESPN than it is on FS1 to do that kind of thing. And I think with 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 Katie Nolan, whatever she decides to do, and and by the way, I don't really think of her as necessarily a political animal, uh, you know, in the way that some of these other people were talking about. But I think that will that act is a lot easier to. That act sort of fits better with ESPN than maybe it would have with the other place. We should also note before we go that we are now living in a period of time in which Fox fires or lets go or whatever you know euphemism you want to use someone um, allegedly because of sexual harassment without like eight hundred claims having piled up first. Um, it's just like an interesting moment in history that this would have happened again. Just back to what we talked about at the beginning of the segment, just like totally out of the blue without seemingly there being any kind of outside pressure to get Jamie Horowitz out of there. Yeah. And I think that's why the, and I, I've been, I've hopefully been trying to at all times kind of resist the comparisons to what happened at Fox news, which I think is very as, as yet very different and involves a very different, kind of amount of public information and I'm I'm very much in right. that let's let's see what happens here before we jump off that ledge. Brian Curtis is editor at large for the Ringer. Brian, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is the deal. Each week you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So there is a rough consensus out there in the world that the winners of the NBA player carousel thus far have been the Wolves. They got Jimmy Butler, the Thunder, who got Paul George and the Celtics, who got Gordon Hayward, while the losers are the Pacers and the Bulls, maybe to a lesser extent the Jazz, uh, and also the Spurs and the Cavs, the latter two of which have signed Rudy Gay with a torn Achilles and Jose Calderon, who might as well have multiple torn Achilles at this point. (laughs) The point I'm making here is that this winners and losers game feels rather pointless when everyone is playing a different game from the Golden State Warriors, who managed to keep their team together by re-signing Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston, and Zaza Pachulia, and bringing in cheap reinforcements, Omri Caspi and Nick Young. All of these moves were abetted by the fact that Kevin Durant took less money than he might have otherwise. Um, he's going to be paid $25 million in salary this year, rather than the max of $34.5 million. Joining us now from Oakland, in the shadow of Oracle Arena, so long as it cast an extremely long shadow, It's Nick Green, who just started writing an NBA column for Slate. He has at least written one NBA column for Slate, so this is my way of putting public pressure on him to write more. Hey, Nick. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Um, Given that you are a 15-minute car ride away from Oracle Arena, I assume you have driven there this morning and can give us some inside scoop into the Warriors' state of mind. I'm curious what you think about Durant taking less money and the fact that there is this kind of cycle going on 
with the Warriors, the fact that, you know, players want to go there and take less money. Durant seems willing not to, you know, accept his fair market value to keep the team together. It does seem like this is in some ways an unfair game they're playing. And I wonder, um, you know, how you feel about it and how you feel about Durant's decision in particular. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, extremely unfair um, that he can't even be flawed in the regard of being selfish. He has to also be unselfish. Uh, it, we saw in the finals that his defense has gotten better. He probably played the best he's ever played, but now he's also proving that he's willing to uh, take a essentially $10 million pay cut um, for the greater good. Um, so yeah, it's very unfair for the rest of the league, but part of it seems like uh, it, it, the fact that he's doing this, they would have been good if they didn't get these extra reinforcements, right? I mean, he wasn't going anywhere. They were going to figure this out one way or another. Um, well, but, but the, when they si- when they signed him last year, I feel like a lot of the conversation was around this is going to come back to get them at some point. Like, this is a historic rise in the salary cap, and that's the only reason that they can get these four all-stars on the same team, but they're going to have to pay the consequences of you're not going to be able to keep Iguodala. You're not going to be able to keep Livingston. It's going to be extremely top heavy team, but you know, Ben, that's not what's ended up happening here. And I sort of feel like we're past the point where we should praise guys for being unselfish, for taking less money. Like it's slightly fucked that the way to keep a team together is, you know, for an owner to go to the best player, one of the best players in the league and say, you know, we can't really pay you what you deserve, but really that's the only mechanism that we have as a team to stay together. And you don't want to be selfish, right? Well, on, and on top of that, the Warriors are built, as has been observed, uh, you know, that that uh, dynasty, uh, the first few years of it, has was built on Curry having, Stephen Curry having a contract that was absurdly, uh, cheap because he, of his injury history, right? So it was he was getting paid way less than his performance would have dictated on the open market at that point, um, and you know, and so uh, to to put it into into uh, to think about it as you know, if this were happening in your own workplace, that would be uh, that's kind of a ridiculous uh, situation to be in, where the the company's top performer is is not only getting underpaid, but everyone else in the world knows it and celebrates it and points to it as the reason for your success. Well, full disclosure, I'm taking $10 million less so we can both be on this podcast right now. <laughs> I think that we should get that out there. Well, I think Josh is right that that uh, that Durant is is not getting praised uh, uh, for being unselfish in the way he might have been, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when we were a little less woke, as it were, about about who's ultimately benefiting, benefiting from this, which is the, the owner of the Warriors and the other NBA owners. Uh, you know, they benefit from uh, from having a salary cap, so they don't have to pay top market price for guys like uh, Durant and, and LeBron James. Uh, you know, uh, at the same time, I think that this this uh, Durant's move, um, y- you know, ultimately that's kind of where I, th- that's exactly where I get off board with the, uh, with the kind of burgeoning uh, Bamani Jones-led, uh, you know, pro-player, pro-labor perspective. You know, I think if Kevin Durant... <laughs> wait, wait! But if, Jones is the only person who is pro player. He's leading the charge. I wait. He, I okay. He he has been very vocal about Nowitzki. Uh, I think and and Durant. Um, and yeah, Nowitzki is taking ten million dollars over uh, two years, which is like 
crazy in a world in which I'm looking at this Ringer article that mentions people that are making a lot more money than Dirk Nowitzki, among them Joe Ingalls, who's making yeah, uh, like <clears throat> 52 over four years. Anyway, continue. JJ Redick is making four and a half times as much money as, as Dirk Nowitzki next year. Um, you know, and I, I understand where the, where the idea is coming from is, you know, don't, don't accept less than you're worth in order to ultimately, uh, you know, line the pockets of the other 30, uh, or the other NBA owners. Uh, but at the same time, I think, I don't know. I, I kind of look at it as like, this is also probably a long-term economically smart decision for Kevin Durant, right? I mean, he gets to, uh, now again next year, probably be the biggest star, the best performer, the MVP, uh, in the NBA finals in one of which will probably also again be one of the most watched NBA finals in, in history. Uh, he gets to, as they say, cement his legacy, uh, to be a, you know, a Hall of Fame, guaranteed Hall of Fame player, someone who's, who's probably going to rise rapidly up the, the charts in the kind of hypothetical who's the best player of all time lists. He's, you know, he's certainly going to get those benefits and, and in the long term for Kevin Durant Inc., you know, I, I think that this is probably a, a pretty decent investment of a, a $10 million down here, uh, you know, in order to kind of get to be in the conversation as an all-time NBA great for the rest of his life, more so than if he had decided to get his, his max value next year from the from the Hornets, you know. Uh, I think that he's probably making the right long-term play. So, Nick, the big uh, signing last week was Gordon Hayward going to the Celtics, our uh, media cycle moved so quickly now that the fact that he announced like three hours later than people thought he was, like the entire world of NBA Twitter went into a tailspin of how dare Gordon Hayward make us wait, uh, you know, till five instead of uh, two. <laughs> I thought we were going to know at two. What is wrong with this guy? How did you feel about him going to the Celtics and the way the announcement was made? Well, there was a kind of collective freak out of everyone going, oh my God, is this not happening? Where's he going? Um, and I was a little detached. So um, rather than be on Twitter all day, which I usually am, uh, I was uh, found a quick couple moments to just Google Gordon Hayward Players Tribune because I knew he would be breaking the news on the Players Tribune. And the first Google result you get for that is his old article, um, The Case for Gaming. Uh, and so I honestly thought that he kind of, took this opportunity to make a case for gaming saying, well, I have everyone's uh, attention here. I'll talk to you about world of Warcraft. Um, but no, it was, he wound up doing exactly what everyone thought he would be doing. Um, and the three hour delay, I think if this would have happened 10 years ago, no one would have cared, obviously, but the fact that this is a complete frenzy, um, did make it, you know, it, it felt like we were all at soccer practice and our parents forgot to pick us up. And it was like, what's happening? What's going on? What's going on right now? <laughs> People were crying. Kids were kids yeah. were asking for quarters to use the payphone. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, the the thing about the delay that stuck out to me uh, is, you know, uh, the the last time that I think anyone would uh, point to that this happened was when DeAndre Jordan, of course, had his epic uh, night of uh, you know kind oh, yeah. of like night of psychological torment uh, and 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 perhaps. Um, you know, forced imprisonment 
uh, when uh, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin uh, kind of like kidnapped him and uh, and and changed and told him, you know, that he needed to come back to the Clippers, and he changed his mind, and instead of signing with the Mavericks as he was going to, uh, came back to the Clippers. I also remember Billy Donovan, I believe, took a job with the Orlando Magic a few years ago, only to to kind of perform a similar reversal and go back to uh, Florida, you know, kind of. So in these situations, it's it's kind of always like when this happens, you expect, at least I expected. Oh, he's going to go home. He's going to make the sentimental choice to go back to Utah. And what makes this decision just even more of a knife twist for for Utah fans is that he he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought about how much he loved Utah and the memories he'd made there. And then he decided he was leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had decided he had made the right choice to get out of Utah. And he really buried the lead in that Players' Tribune article. He actually did publish it. Um, he made his choice in like the eighth paragraph, and the headline was "Thank you, Utah." So <laughs> it was very misleading and confusing. I think um, he spent a lot more time just revising the "Why I Love Gaming" <laughs> story. That was really his main task on July Fourth. So that's the only real move of any significance that brought talent from out west to the Eastern Conference. Everything else: Paul George going to OKC. Jimmy Butler going to um, Minnesota. Um, there's this been this major east to west shift that was extremely not needed by the NBA. Um, I've heard people talk about how if it was just the top 16 teams, it would be something like 12. You know, for, would be from from the West, and you know, the conversation about who is winning and losing the off season is so context dependent. You have people talking about how the Sixers are a potential playoff team in the East. You know, Ben mentioned them signing J.J. Redick. The core players uh, on their team have either never played an NBA game or have had like two healthy months ever mm. in the NBA. And then you have folks, you know, crapping all over the Pelicans for re-signing Drew Holiday, which admittedly is not a great contract, but they have Holiday, DeMarcus Cousins, and Anthony Davis. And there's really... I'm I am kind of pessimistic about the Pelicans, but I really don't think there's a chance that they're going to make the playoffs this year. I don't think it's a great chance. And in the if they're in the East, people would just be throwing parades for them. And this strikes me as a big problem for the NBA and one that doesn't seem like anyone is talking seriously about addressing. It's one that just people are like throwing their hands up in the air, just saying, you know, what can be done? Do you guys think that something can or should be done about the fact that all the teams in the East are terrible? I mean, you know, what what we really need is a, is a, some heavy-handed behind-the-scenes kind of David Stern-esque reorganizations of those franchises, right? I mean, the Eastern Conference franchises are losing people because they're run by idiots. Uh, I mean, Dan Gilbert is an idiot. James Dolan is an idiot. Uh, the people who are running the Bulls are right now are idiots. And, uh, you know, those are like three of the teams that probably should be like the NBA's like uh, premier properties, you know, like and there's the teams that are going to unfortunately, uh, you know, in the case of the Bulls end up on TV a lot on national TV a lot no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, like what what I would would prefer to see is just some uh some some moving and shaking by Adam Silver and get get the get the clowns out and get the uh get some actual uh, sensible people in those franchises. Yeah, and it's it's pretty complicated too because um on the one hand the NBA has become this 365 day a year uh event. Their off season stuff is you know it. When's the last time you thought about the NFL? 
um, it seems like years ago I had to think about that. Um, so that's really good for the NBA, and I'm sure Adam Silver loves that, and that's facilitated 100% by player movement and kind of enabling uh, this this kind of open market of, of during the summer of players going everywhere. And that has also resulted in all the good players going to the West, which was already much better. Um, and that's it's just not the just, way it It's not out. just player movement. It's significant player movement. I think the difference yeah. with the NFL is that none of the transactions or most of them just don't really matter. Yeah. And I, I mean, certainly, and there's in the NFL, it's an offensive lineman's moving teams might be the most important move of the off season, but people don't really, you know, watch football for the offensive linemen. Um, whereas the NBA, it's, there's just fewer players. Um, they're kind of, I think the connection the fans have with them, um, this is, could be arguable, but I, I think is, is stronger or more personal because it's a kind of more, uh, personality driven sport. But, um, just the fact that the reason it's a big deal is because these players can move around and eventually you're going to have some lopsided, uh, results because of that and that's what i think what we're seeing uh this off season also just because you know like the weather on the east coast is bad and it's <laughs> yes. not fun to live on the east coast uh, nor- anywhere north of miami which not coincidentally is one team that has really had a lot of success in this era and in miami's gonna be underwater in three years so you can't take a long-term <laughs> right. contract there right right and the thing is, it's like everyone's going to lose to the Warriors. So if I were a player, I would just go somewhere warm and lose where the weather's nice. <laughs> there is uh, something to be said for that. Well, then, Ben, you shouldn't be talking about you know Chicago and New York as the places that are the most disappointing. What about your Orlando's? What about your Atlanta's? These should be our uh, you know bellwether franchises of the East. That's a very good point. Some some ridiculous percentage of pro athletes from all sports like live within thirty miles of of Disney World, like in Orlando. It's it's like the concentration is ridiculous. So yeah, I mean, just for the the uh, um, you know convenience of not having to 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 put take out a you know a second mortgage, Orlando should be should be drawing big names. The continuing badness of the magic is a really fascinating subplot because every offseason with free agency there's always the quote-unquote smart guy who's like there's no state income tax in florida (laughs) all the all the players are going to florida and yet somehow um i guess maybe maybe one solution is that if you don't make the playoffs for 10 straight years you should automatically have your franchise sent to seattle that could be an that could be a, a rule change that i would get behind I think there would actually be a, more than one franchise in Seattle now if that were the, if that were the case. Certainly, the Knicks would have been there for uh, for a long time. <laughs> the more, the better. I want to finish up by discussing the T-shirt that the uh, Los Angeles Clippers personnel wore when they were trying and ultimately succeeded in enticing Blake Griffin to stay after uh, Chris Paul had uh, engineered a trade to Houston. So this is a T-shirt. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen it. It has the word pioneers written on it in a sort of graffiti font. And then above it, I'm looking from bottom to top. You've got Abe Lincoln, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Einstein, JFK, Martin Luther King, Obama, Muhammad Ali. And then at the very top, 
at the pinnacle of this pyramid of success is Blake Griffin wearing a Clippers jersey. Did you guys feel like there were any players missing? Like, should Eric Piatkowski have been on this T-shirt? <laughs> should um, what was the name of the person who uh, recorded Donald Sterling? Like V. Stiviano. Should, <laughs> should she have been on there with her visor? Like, what what was this missing from an art direction standpoint? I mean, it's interesting that Obama's on there just from a historical perspective. I'm not sure if Obama has earned the right to be <laughs> on a shirt with Blake Blake Griffin yet. You know, uh, I mean, his legacy is not secure. If you remember, Einstein did lead the Clippers to the Western Conference Finals, so it is a little appropriate to have him on there. <laughs> who do you think would be? So we've got nine guys on there. Like, who do you think would be the starting five, and who would be coming off the bench? I made the joke on Twitter that I will recycle now that Austin Rivers is clearly going to be starting in this team, <laughs> no matter who's on it. But do you feel like, like, do you want to bring Obama? You're saying you want to bring Obama off the bench. At this point, even though he's one of the few people on this T-shirt who has shown a demonstrable interest in basketball. you got to have Lincoln. I mean, he's got the height. Right. I think we all know that Lincoln is probably our best basketball prospect (laughs) as a a president. Um, Absolutely. Uh, He's sad all the time. Do you really want that in your locker room? Just a real sad guy? (laughs) Constantly telling stories? I'm going by the Dan Day-Lewis Lincoln. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, it's kind of the boogie cousins of the the White House, you know? (laughs) Like a lot of talent, but but not necessarily great for the mood of the other people around him. So Clippers, uh, big free agency winners from an apparel standpoint. Uh, Nick Green writes about the NBA for Slate. Thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. And every time Ben Mathis Lilly is on the show, um, we can be sure of speaking of Jim Harbaugh, the man who graces his Twitter profile photo, the man he dreams about <laughs> nightly, even uh, during the long summer before a college football season. I think you mentioned this the last time you were on the show, Ben, but I wanted to take this occasion again to remind people of the strange and frankly alluring fact that Jim Harbaugh is a huge booster of the Legal Services Corporation. That's right. He uh, he was apparently uh, uh, brought in to uh, to act in some sort of kind of oversight, you know, oversight board of directors guy who's vaguely involved. Role uh, I think Hank Aaron is also uh, involved in uh, involved in it. Uh, but of course, in a in a, you know in a particularly Harbaugh in fashion. Uh, has just gotten really excited about the idea of uh, affordable legal defense for um, uh, for Americans, and uh, and has uh, since the uh, program was uh, I think marked for a cut in the uh, in the budget that the Trump administration put out, uh, has really kind of taken to uh, defending it uh, in a lot of his public appearances. So, if you're in favor of providing financial support for civil legal aid for low income Americans, and you do not support the Michigan football team, I would say. Check your values. Uh, ben Mathis Lilly, what is your legal services corporation? This is an, it's an odd uh, introduction, but we're going to do it nonetheless. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, 
I uh, mine uh, uh, goes back uh, uh, twelve years ago uh, to to a column uh, slate column. I, I actually still think about a lot, and that's uh, on August 20, uh, 29, two thousand five. The the writer Neil Pollock described and criticized what he called the cult of the general manager in a slate piece. Pollock complained that fans and writers were taking the fun out of sports by overhyping and obsessing about team executives, such as baseball general managers Billy Bean and Theo Epstein. Pollock thought there was something off about centering fandom around individuals who, while they may be talented in their own way, are ultimately just guys in suits uh, who will never themselves make an athletic play that amazes or excites us or inspires us, which is what watching sports is supposed to be about. Twelve years later, uh, 12 years after Pollock's piece, the cult of the GM is still alive and it's most active in the NBA, where promising Philadelphia 76ers center Joel Embiid frequently punctuates his social media posts with the phrase, trust the process. That's a reference to the philosophy of former Sixers president of basketball operations, Sam Hinkey, a famously wonky figure who worked for Bain Capital before getting into basketball and who was pushed out of his job with the Sixers in April of 2016. So what we have here is is not just a fan, but an actual player, uh, someone who is actually capable of dunking and making three-pointers and blocking shots and doing all the things that fans actually like to watch, uh, participating in the celebration of a private equity guy who hasn't even worked for their uh, for his team for a year. So if the way we treated general managers in 2005 was cult-like, uh, the way we treat them now is at the committing mass suicide while wearing white unisex turtlenecks because we think it's the best way to teleport our bodies onto a passing comet stage. And yet today, my legal services afterball goes to that very cult. Uh, that's because I've realized in the years since Pollock wrote his article that my most exciting, memorable, and perhaps even meaningful sports spectation experiences have in fact involved organizations who have fully embraced the idea that the most important thing a team can do is to make sure that the right middle-aged individual in a suit is making the right kind of intellectually methodical decisions at the top. Uh, in September 2015, for example, I watched from the 12th row of Michigan Stadium as running back uh, Devian Smith brought 109,000 fans to their feet with an astounding, rumbling 60-yard touchdown whose final 35 yards involved what was basically hand-to-hand combat uh, with an unfortunate BYU safety who Smith fought off twice and ultimately threw to the ground before leaping into the end zone. That was the moment for me when my favorite team announced its return to national relevance. And it happened ultimately because interim Michigan athletic director Jim Hackett, an old guy in a suit who happens to be the former CEO of a furniture company, hired Jim Harbaugh, a middle-aged man who wears khakis while he obsesses about the crucial off-the-field details of program management that make a football, college football team what it actually is. Uh, In February 2016, meanwhile, I watched a grown man leap into another grown man's arms. Admittedly, the first grown man was me and the second was my friend Ira. Uh, at a Brooklyn sports bar when Stephen Curry sized up and hit a 30-foot buzzer beater to defeat the Oklahoma City Thunder. It was one of the most memorable basketball shots ever, and it was a perfect symbolic encapsulation of a Warriors team that has changed basketball for the better because their admittedly arrogant hedge fund billionaire owner, Joe Lacobe, has turned his eye-roll-worthy obsession with innovation culture uh, into a team that plays audaciously creative and fun-to-watch basketball. 
Now, the cult of the GM, of course, can have excesses. I'm certain the multiple years during which Sam Hinkie's intentionally and aggressively hopeless last place 76ers teams got blown off their home court every night were not good for basketball fans. But I'm here to say that there's not anything strange or shameful about being worried about your, who your team's executives are. That's because fans know that worrying about these middle-aged guys in suits is not an end to itself. It's simply an acknowledgement of the critical role that those guys play in ultimately facilitating the stuff we actually care about. It's an emotional down payment, in other words, that we hope will be rewarded with spectacular plays, dramatic comebacks, and glorious championships. If caring about these things means I'm in a cult, then give me my white unisex turtleneck. <laughs> All right. Josh, what's your legal services corporation? Thank you, Ben. So my favorite story from the first week of Wimbledon had nothing to do with Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or Andy Murray or even Bethany Maddox-Sanz's horrific uh, knee injury. Um, it involved coughing, more accurately, allegations of coughing. After her third-round victory over Camila Giorgi, French Open champ uh, Yelena Ostapenko said in her post-match press conference, I was just trying to focus on my game and to be on the court. It was just before my serve, somebody started to cough. I think it's a little bit unsportsmanlike. You're in such a high level in the tournament like Wimbledon, a Grand Slam. I think people have to understand where they are. I was shocked because I think it was from her dad, actually, or her box. I mean, the people who are in her team, they're probably very close to tennis. They probably have to understand how to behave during the points or before the serve. Now, uh, Ben, we're not listening to the clip, but I'd like to imagine that the way she said that was something like this. I mean, the people who are on her team, they're probably very close to tennis. <laughs> anyway, um, our pal Ben Rothenberg, who writes about tennis for The New York Times, added some more texture to the story, tweeting, now hearing that someone in the Georgie box was also coughing in round two before Madison Keyes' serves. Now, if you don't know about Camila Georgie and her dad, who was the one who was accused of doing the coughing, you're missing out on a truly fantastic tale. Georgie is a 25-year-old Italian. She's gotten as high as 30th in the rankings and is known for hitting the ball very hard. Her father and her coach, Sergio, who was born in Argentina, has a huge mop of gray hair. Ben, when I sent you his photo, you said he looked like either unfrozen caveman tennis dad or a lesser known member of ACDC or Einstein, if Einstein was stupid. That was my favorite one. <laughs> but is Sergio Giorgi stupid? Let us examine the evidence. In 2014, another of our tennis pals, John Wertheim, wrote a great long piece for Sports Illustrated that uncovered a world um, in sports, especially the country club sports like tennis and golf, that we really don't hear about a lot. And that is um, the world of private investment, that you get businessmen who like want to be around talented young athletes and they'll pony up some money. And in this case, um, Sergio had solicited financial investments in his daughter's career from a large number of private sponsors. And in exchange, he said he would pay them back in a certain period of time. Um, and instead of paying them back, he, in fact, did not pay them back, which is <laughs> a great way to finance your daughter's tennis career if you can get away with it. So a representative case is that of Todd Andrews. He is a tennis teacher. He helped the Georgies uh, round up a bunch of these investors as part of an agreement that they'd all be paid back within a year. 
According to Wertheim um, from his story in 2014, when uh, Georgie made the fourth round at Wimbledon, um, an earlier Wimbledon, she earned more than $100,000. Andrews was like, aha, $100,000 is money. I need money from the people that just won the $100,000. So he told Sergio, remember, you owe us. Hit uh, the father's response. Yeah, I know. We'll have it soon. Fast forward. Andrews drove the Georgies to Heathrow Airport and dropped them off. I'm reading from Wertheim's story now. No sooner had they said their goodbyes, Andrews says Camilla came running back. Did she come running back with a large check in her hand? No. She came running back saying they had to pay extra baggage fees to check in their luggage and they needed Mm. another 400 pounds which Todd Andrews gave him. At this point, you begin to question uh, whose fault this is. After paying the baggage fee, he says he went months without hearing from the Georgies, though Camila had won more than $500,000 since her agreement with uh, the sponsors. They say they still have not received a dime from her. Wertheim's last update came a couple of years ago when he said Andrews had filed a civil suit against the Georgies in Florida. I was not able to find an indication of how the case has been adjudicated after searching public record sites. Um, Also, you know, she has been asked about this. She was asked about it in 2014, um, right after the SI story came out in a press conference. And her response was basically like, I just want to talk about tennis. The reporter responded by saying, you're a, you know, a 22 year old woman, you should have to answer to this. And then she was like, I don't really speak English very well. (laughs) So we don't have a great uh, on the record response from Camila Georgie or her father, um, who now seems like he might have a coughing problem. That is our show for today. Thanks to Ben Mathis Lilly for filling in. Our producer is Patrick Ford and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Political Gab Fest, the original political podcast and still the best. Stars Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson and David Plotz. Come for the great conversations about whatever the hell it is that Donald Trump is doing. Stay for Plotz chattering about eclipses. For the latest episodes, which post on Thursday evenings, go to slate.com slash gabfest. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. (gasps) No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.